Dr. DeAndre Ori is professor of political science at Jackson State University. He and I go back to days in undergrad, me at Jackson State and him at Mississippi Valley State. And while I can tell you everything, day, time, and who was in the room and who said what, from that period, this whole pandemic time still has me thrown off. Somewhere in the, in the recent past, I reached out to him about a textbook that was attempting in the 1970s to tell true and accurate history of the state of Mississippi in a way that was inclusive and that would create an equitable learning environment. The story behind the book could have informed all of us nationwide as to what would happen and what is happening with this fake hysteria around CRT or anti-CRT movement. I call it anti-truth movement is what it is. Anyway, as he and I were exchanging text, I found out that he had been charged with republishing the book, Mississippi Conflict and Change. In this episode of the Parlay in All Blue, we'll talk to Dr. Ori about the story of the book, the current environment around this anti-CRT propaganda and movement, and we'll put it into the context of today's political environment, along with some swag history and black college history and a good taste of music and culture in the state of Mississippi. Thank you so much again for joining us on the Parlay in All Blue. Dr. DeAndre Ori, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. How are you? Hey, thanks for having me, man. I'm doing good. Doing good. Hey, listen, be before we get started, and this happened off camera from this session, and I will throw myself out there for the, the mercy of everyone because you're wearing green today and I've got on my Jackson State blue, and I think you are wearing that to make sure that I get the name of Mississippi Valley State University properly and not call it some other school in Mississippi of which I deserve flogging, punishment, scarlet letters, and anything else you have. No, so I'll just I'll just attribute that to you not coming back home enough. And um and <laughs> and even so the fact that you all dare play Mississippi Valley State for homecoming when you do come home, it may be it may be forgotten. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Listen and my family and I, we're excited. You know, I will say this, and this will get me in trouble. So my wife is a graduate of Hampton, but she won't she won't admit this out loud. But she loves the Jackson State football Saturdays and weekends too. So you know, I'll take that flogging when she gets there. So we're we're excited for this season. But listen, before we get started, or just just go into what we want to talk to, I want to go back to the summer of 2020, when unfortunately we have the deaths of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and then the, the brutal televisor killing of, of George Floyd. And America and much of the world, much of the Western world, says it's time for a racial reckoning. What do we need to do? And so much of it was, was built around just getting information and how do we inform people and where do we have gaps in sort of our history and and how do we learn more and that you know there were people reaching out of 
Just just I want to know what's going on. I want to listen. Fast forward. And whether it's Mississippi, Georgia, Florida, Texas, Iowa, <laughs> most recently, the governor of Virginia, the, the, the Virginia governor's race, the governor and campaigned openly about being anti-CRT. It's like we've had this whiplash of the country or certain voices in the country saying we need to have our history and we need to be taught. And this was at all levels. And now we have the exact sort of opposite reaction. But I think if we were aware of, and I wasn't aware of this until maybe a couple of years ago when you informed me that you were working on, I think I sent you an article about Mississippi conflict and change, and I I hadn't heard of it. I think it was an article in the Clarion Ledger. And it was a textbook that in the 70s that kind of, tackled some of these issues and had battles around it that were similar to what we're seeing now. What is Mississippi Conflict and Change? I'll stop there. So Mississippi Conflict and Change um, was spearheaded by Jim Lowen. Jim Lowen was a scholar activist who had come down to Mississippi in the 1960s during the Civil Rights Movement. And um, he went to Mississippi State for a semester, I believe, or even that year but he wanted to be a part of the movement. And so much so that once he received his PhD in sociology, he returned to Mississippi, received his PhD at Harvard. He returned to Mississippi and taught at Tougaloo College. And in his first year of teaching, they actually replaced their Western civilization course with a course on social science. And they focused on black history. And so when he was teaching reconstruction, he was um, taken aback that, Many of his students, when they asked, when he asked them, you know, what was Reconstruction? And they said that, well, that was a time period where, you know, blacks weren't literate. And so when they took over in these um, political positions, they simply were not prepared. And so the union had to take these positions back and restore them in the hands of, of whites. And so he was really taken aback by that and said that, look, the guy that wrote the textbook from Mississippi knew better. He knew him as a professor when he took classes at Mississippi State. But he was actually writing it for the purpose of having it adopted by, you know, the public school system in Mississippi. And the only way that he could do that at that time was to write a very sanitized history. And so Jim Lowen, along with some of his former students and another colleague at Millsaps, they decided after they couldn't get anyone to write a a history book on Mississippi that was, you know, truth telling. He decided that he tackled it himself. He was a sociologist by training, but he's a very, very smart guy. So he was able to provide a, a, his, a history textbook that addressed this whole Reconstruction era. And it talked about terrorism and intimidation by the Klan. It had images of, of lynchings. And so it provided the tools, if you will, for an individual to read for themselves the accurate history and not a revisionist history, and then be able to use those tools in understanding society as we know it today and as they knew it then. And so Mississippi Conflict and Change was written for the purpose of rewriting history so that we could actually have a more accurate Mississippi history. And so that sounds, first off, very ambitious. 
and also on target, but what happened to the textbook? Was it adopted? So it was written and um, they actually submitted it as a proposal to be used in the public school systems. It was rejected by, I think, a count of five to two, whatever the committee, textbook committee was. And of course, those two individuals were black and the five individuals who rejected were, were white. But then Jim Lowen filed a lawsuit along with his team. They filed a lawsuit, turnip seed, and it went out to the Supreme Court. And they said that it violated his first first. They violated the First Amendment rights for freedom of speech. And so Mississippi was forced to include it as an option for those who wanted to choose textbooks. And some school districts did choose it as one of its textbooks. I didn't realize that some districts actually use it. But so was it widespread or just a a handful or? It was primarily predominantly black districts here in Jackson. They used them, but it was primarily in the, you know, in the in the uh, predominantly black districts. And is it in use now? No, it actually is out of print. And so that's 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 the point here that we want to republish it. But no, it's it's out of print. And it's been out of print for quite a while. And you are spearheading, you're you're leading sort of that that republishing of it. And so, you know, congratulations to you, or maybe you're a glutton for punishment, especially in this environment of anti-CRT where we have people. And I, you know what, I, I want to say first off, before, you know what, I'll let you you respond to this. What is CRT to begin with? For anybody who's been watching the news, I'm sure you've heard it, but let's let's just clear the air again. What is CRT? So critical race theory is a bunch of things. It was a movement. And so uh, in terms of having a clear definition of what it is, it was inductively, I guess, created in terms of definition because it was, you know, it started as a movement and it was just something that folk did. I mean, it was it was, it was truth telling. It's this notion that racism is endemic in American life. And so we'll start there. So okay. it's systemic. It, it, it addresses um, issues of systems that are put in place that create these structures that maintain rep- repressive systems. So it also looks at the intersectionality. And this is why you can't really nail down a definition because it's very, very complex. It addresses the intersectionality of race and gender. This notion that black women are doubly disadvantaged as not only as as blacks, but they're disadvantaged as being black by penalized rather or discriminated against by black men. And as a woman, they're discriminated against by white women. So they're doubly disadvantaged. So it addresses this. I'll give you a real quick example. I use Derek Bell's book, And We're Not Saved. And in that book, he has an African-American woman who is the hero or shero rather of the book. She goes back to the founding of the of the of the of the constitution of the final of this country. And she goes back and she talks to the framers and she's really controlling the narrative. And she has a super shero outfit on that they can't kill her. The point I'm making here is that it even is this conglomeration of metaphors is based on storytelling. And so Derek Bell is one of the chief architects of critical race theory, but he used these stories to create these chronicles where it actually makes this black woman a shero 
And she's actually forcing these framers to recognize the issues that are related to race and racism and how that has implications for the future of America from that point. Yeah, I'm glad you said that, and I'm glad you used that example and brought that name up, Derek Bell. And I would encourage our listeners to check out Brother Derek Bell, rest in peace. And and his I I've read. Um, Let me say this: faces bottom well. Go ahead. Yeah. So also, it addresses this notion that we live in a colorblind society and that the law is objective and race neutral. It forces us to contend with this fact that many discussions of colorblind societies are ahistorical and they sanitize race. And so when you sanitize race and don't address some of those issues like Jim Lorne addressed with respect to reconstruction and the intimidation of the Klan and, you know, them literally wrestling away the power from blacks. When you look at voting rights and not realize that felon disenfranchisement started in the 1890s with, you know, Mississippi's constitution in order to eliminate Blacks from participating in the political process. When you do not take in consideration the historical context, then you don't understand the repression that goes on now and the what is called voter suppression. We, we used to call vote dilution, but voter suppression goes back to the 1890s. And it was strictly enforced for the purpose of eliminating Blacks from voting. And I want to come back. Actually, I'm glad you said that. And I want to come back to that, especially around the voting. I do want to contrast something because it looks like it sounds like what Mississippi conflict and change is correcting. You mentioned this. It's looking at history and and I'm paraphrasing now and setting the record straight, telling true and accurate history. What sort of influenced textbooks in Mississippi and throughout the South? What was before well, maybe even to now, but sort of let's call it from most of the part of the previous century. What what influenced and what groups and what sort of thought influenced what was in textbooks? Well, you know, you had the lost cause, this notion that the Civil War was fought between the North and the South because of the conflicts that existed. And it wasn't about slavery that, you know, blacks and whites were getting along here and, you know, Blacks just, you know, were enslaved, but it wasn't as problematic as, as people might, might, might make it to be. And so there was an effort to maintain that narrative, one, to take the shame off of Mississippians, white Mississippians, that is, but also to maintain a racially integrated society that was segregated. So in other words, he who controls the narrative controls the game. And so who he, he or she who controls the game and the rules of the game, rather, control the outcome of the game. And this is, in fact, what happens with, with history. When you create a revisionist history and, you know, you create it for the purpose of maintaining dominance of one group over another group, then this is precisely what you get in terms of, you know, this whole issue with the critical race theory is there's an effort to combat truth telling. But let me just say this, this is getting a little bit away from the question, but I do want to make this point regarding critical race theory. Now go ahead. Critical race theory is manufactured, man, by a guy by the name of Chris Rufo. 
I mean, he had an interview with the New Yorker. And this is so crazy because he actually said that, look, the Republicans need some new language to fight with. Now, the use of the language like political correctness, that was stale. The woke criticism, that didn't really stick anymore. It was getting um, stale and overused. So he said that, you know, here's this language out there, this concept called critical race theory. And the Republicans didn't create it. It was created by the folks who use it. Those are, you know, elites, academics, all of those who conservatives despise. And so he said, let's use critical race theory. He literally came up with this critical race theory as an issue. And it was added on to on to other issues that have been used in the past, like the, the Southern strategy. The Southern strategy used issues like law and order during the 1960s when blacks were engaged in uprisings. And so they didn't have to use explicit or overt language like we need to keep the NNN from voting, like Lee Atwater would say, but they use these innuendos. And critical race theory is simply one of those issues now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there is. Um, listen, whenever I talk about uh, and a big part of what the, the show is about is I certainly am not for racial slurs or painting swastikas or hanging nooses or any of those kinds of things, it, because all of that's despicable. Don't get me wrong. But the bigger issue for me is how systemic racism is buried under race neutral language right like like you said i mean it's 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 always buried under race neutral language and all of this has just been a, a rallying point but it's working really it's working really well on the right so far and we will see what happens there before i go into more of that i do want to dig into a little bit of of mississippi conflict and and change and what you are what are some of the things that you've sort of come across in your republishing that is, uh, give us an example of things that are being corrected and how you're using int- intersectionality in the, in the republishing of the, of the book? Yeah, so I would say that it's an expansion. It's an expansion over what, you know, Jim and his colleagues who did a great job with um, in 1974 so we have to pick up from 1974, which was really 1969. It was published in 74, but they really kind of stopped at 69, 70-ish. And so they asked a lot of questions in terms of trying to look into the future. And so we start with 1970-ish, and we move into, for example, you know, Mississippi has first woman lieutenant governor. We have to cover that. You mentioned intersectionality. We also focus on the fact that over time, Black women were actually being elected into public offices. And even though they are grossly underrepresented, one thing that emerged in our fact-finding was that they are better represented than white women. And so neither of them are represented well at all. Right. But white women are grossly underrepresented, and that doesn't seem to be an issue. I mean, it's almost like, you know, this is literally the South as a conservative Southern state where, you know, patriarchy still maintains itself in just a very overt form. 
So we look at the evolution of voting rights for blacks. We show that there were lawsuits that were filed in the 1960s that came to fruition. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of black plaintiffs and they got rid of some dilutive mechanisms that were put in place. You know, there were when, when the Voting Rights Act was passed in 65, immediately after the Voting Rights Act was passed, Mississippi redistricted in the middle of a redistricting cycle. You normally redistrict every 10 years. But because they filed a lawsuit, Mississippi was able to redistrict and they created these gerrymandered districts. Some of the same things you see today, they created what we call at-large election system of multi-member districts. Well, in 1979, in one of the court cases, Conner versus Johnson, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of blacks after like 14, 15 years. They finally ruled in their favor and they got rid of these multi-member districts and they were able to create these majority black districts. This was the first wave of the creation of majority black districts that you see today. I mean, 99 percent of blacks who are elected into Congress, I'll say 95 percent, are elected from majority black districts. And this is a direct lineage of the success that blacks had in Mississippi in challenging in the courts so that they could create these majority black districts. And now Mississippi has the largest number of black elected officials in the country. And it's almost solely attributed to majority black districts. That's awesome. I, I, I didn't, I didn't know that. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I attribute a lot of my success, whatever, by whatever measure you want to talk about to, to my time in Mississippi, where I was, I think that in some places, in a lot of cases where you are forced to be innovative and you're forced to to really fight, you're you you're going to actually get the best innovations and some really good outcomes. Let me let me let me let me also add, Mark. Another thing that we address in the book is sort of the evolution and devolution of integration. And so, you know, 1969, Mississippi <laughs> starts to incorporate the 1954 Brown versus Boyd. We we finally get to it around 1969. Yep the epitome of it all with deliberate speed. Yeah. So we finally in 1969 began integration, 66-ish, some other you know areas were beginning to see integration. But I actually was a part of integration, man. In 72 was my first year of elementary school, and we integrated out to actually where I live now, but it was an all-white area. And so this was in 72, fast forward, to 1984, when I graduated from high school, we were 96% black. So the high school that was 1972 was 95% white. By 1984, it was 95% black. Yeah. And so that's something that we addressed, that integration, at least in Jackson, it was resegregated. But one thing that we also found out was that across the state, there are still public schools that are integrated. And so, you know, the, the issue with schools like Jackson public school systems, one, people migrated to the suburbs, you know, they took these rural areas and created suburbs, but then they had these academy schools. And so the academy schools were the schools that whites left the public school system and attended private schools in the same areas. You know, I always ask the question, I asked a student when I was teaching at the University of Mississippi, Mississippi is one of the poorest states in the country. And it's not only black people that are poor, 
So how do whites actually pay for schooling at these private schools? And he told me that, you know, the churches provide scholarships. Yeah. So we did find out that this was not the case, you know, across the entire state, that there are still schools that are integrated. And if you focus on Jackson, then you you, you really miss the bigger picture. And so, yeah, we, we did find out that there were still a number of integrated schools throughout the state. Yeah, yeah. Listen, and, you know, what's really, and again, back to the whole point of a lot of this being systemic, those segregation academies, as as they are often referred to, they were created throughout the country, really, but especially in the South. There's so much when people talk about taxes and, and all of those things is that by churches funding them and churches not being taxed, in a way that businesses or private individuals are, in a lot of cases, can end up funding a de facto school system that is segregated. It's just a way around it. It's just sort of a redirecting and a whole lot of other things that end up happening in terms of the way schools are funded and what have you. So that's that's. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it, it gets to the systemic nature of racism. But how did how did you end up being charged with republishing uh, Mississippi conflict and change. Yeah, so I met Jim Lowen when I was um, at the University of New York in 1993 or so. He was working through a grant with the Southern Regional Council out of Atlanta, which was really big on the civil rights movement with the voter education project and whatnot. Well, the Southern Regional Council provided these grants for young scholars to couple up with some of the veterans who conducted expert witness work in voting right cases. And so the, the nature of the work was highly quantitative. In other words, it used these statistical techniques to understand racial polarized voting. And so in other words, if blacks vote black and whites vote white and whites in a the majority, then whites always win. So you get permanent winners and permanent losers. So anyway, Jim Lowen was one of the mentors in that program, and I was one of his mentees. Okay. And so he he reached out to me after years. He reached out to me and said, look, man, I'm looking to republish a Mississippi conflict and change, and I was wondering if you might be interested in it. And, of course, man, to, to be a part of anything that Jim Lowen was a part of is is is, is just an honor. No, it really is. And it's, I mean, you're really fortunate to have uh, been mentored by someone of, of his stature, both in terms of his intellect, but also you mentioned at the beginning of his of his activism and taking direct action. He also wrote a book, um, Lies My Teacher Told Me. Tell us a little bit about that book, Lies My Teacher Told Me. Well, it's just the concept. The concept is, you know, comparable to another book he wrote, teaching what really happened, all of this is sort of in the same vein, if you will, where he looks at the way history had been written and how it had been taught and really how stale it was and how inaccurate it was. And so for him, you know, we needed to get out of the box of having someone memorize, for example, how many counties are in Mississippi, having them memorize, you know, what were the dates of the Civil War and not ask, you know, what were the dates, but why did the Civil War happen? 
what was the aftermath of the Civil War? What did it do for black and white relationships, race relations? So, you know, his focus was to, you know, really rewrite history whereby we really tell it like it is. I mean, like what, you know, he talked about Woodrow Wilson in that book, like my teacher told me. Woodrow Wilson was one of the most racist presidents we've ever had. I mean, birth of a nation was shown in the White House. And so he actually, you know, tells these stories so that, you know, we don't sanitize racism. So when I was in school, the only thing that I knew about Woodrow Wilson was the League of Nations. I, you know, just to push behind that. And I know he's the president after sort of World War One, just roughly and what have you. So it's one of those things of there wasn't anyone who stood up in front of me and said that he did not show Birth of a Nation, which was one of America. It was America's first blockbuster film and then followed up by Gone, and the, Gone with the Wind. No one ever told me that he didn't show that in the White House. It was just omitted. And also equally omitted was his intent and direction of resegregating the federal offices in D.C. I mean, he's an extremely um, racist president. What were some lies that you were told in school and, and what's been corrected or, or won? Well, I wouldn't say they were necessarily lies because, you know, I did the schools that I attended, we did have white instructors for a little while, like I said, until, you know, we started uh, resegregating. But one thing that we did, we did like field trips over to Vicksburg to the Civil War battlefield. And so, like you said, it wasn't taught that, you know, this war was fought over slavery and the economics related to slavery. We just knew that a war had taken place and that Mississippi was one of the states that participated in the war and that, you know, there were heroes and that were involved in that war and they were on the Confederate side. So, you know, like you said, just to, to not include information or to exclude information is just as bad as including bad information. Yeah. And along with that, were you taught anything about Reconstruction in school? Sort of Reconstruction to me was this period of that. I think I discovered it yesterday, right? In terms of its impact or or what have it, have you? Were you taught anything about that? And and does Mississippi conflict and change of where you republishing cover anything in terms of Reconstruction? No, no, we weren't taught Reconstruction at all. We we just simply weren't taught it, but. Yes, Mississippi conflict and change, it covers it. I mean, that's really the focal point for his the impetus behind actually writing the book was that, you know, like I said earlier, when 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 the students at Tougaloo said that basically after Reconstruction, the black politicians had messed up. And so right. they needed to, you know, replace them with the white politicians. And, you know, in Mississippi Conflict and Change, it, it gets at the good things that took place. The, you know, most progressive constitution that was written was written during Reconstruction. And, you know, the fact that there were 
some 30 odd black legislators. There were three black congresspersons, the first black senator, U.S. senator was from Mississippi. Um, and so all of that's addressed. And it's also they also address that intimidation. They, there's, a, there's a nice section in there on the Klan and the evolution of the Klan and, you know, the rationale for the Klan being the timing of them, you know, really emerging during Reconstruction. There's a section in there that talks about how the 1890 Mississippi plan, which was an era where they essentially intimidated blacks as, as relates to voting. They, they had these bunkers where you had these folks really like in military style waiting at the booth, at the, at the uh, precincts. And so you had folks with guns literally in bunkers, like waiting for black folks to come, you know, whether or not they were going to shoot them or not. They wouldn't risk that, obviously. And so that was the the impetus or not the impetus, but the origin, if you will, for voter suppression. You mentioned that sort of intimidation and, and violence. And, and listen, there is uh, and and I'm happy that, you know, we're, more information is coming out. But, you know, there's a lot that gets told about Tulsa and Black Wall Street. But I think people should know or we should all be aware of that in Mississippi and Yazoo County, or what I think it's Clinton, Mississippi, there was an overthrow, there's yeah. Wilmington, Colfax, and Louisiana. So it, it, there's this pattern of sort of Black progress, and then there's legal fights to constrain it, whether we have right now with the various voter suppression laws, the anti-CRT made-up bills, or what have you even have, anti-abortion sort of bills that are passing. There's always this backlash. And most recently, we we see the January 6th last year, right? But in Mississippi, or represented on the January 6th committee, is chaired by Benny Thompson. Who is Benny Thompson? And what's his relationship to any of this in terms of Mississippi legislatures and Tougaloo and, and anything else? Oh, yeah. So, you know, Benny Thompson actually is a Tougaloo alum. Yeah. And I remember when they talked about Tougaloo. Well, I remember once they they stole a van from Tougaloo to go in and actually protest. So they went out and protested and Benny Thompson was actually the one who was driving the van. And and so that's really sort of him getting his um, teeth cut in, in protest. Well, Benny Thompson went on to become the first black supervisor in Bolton and he ultimately became mayor of Bolton. And this is what you're talking about in the early 1970s. So Benny Thompson was one of those first to actually be elected into office, but then also one of the first black mayors after Charles Evers down in Fayette. But Benny Thompson has always been that one thorn in the side of white conservatives. He was a part of the Ayers case. Yes. You know, where the inequities of funding HBCUs was brought to light. And ultimately they, you know, had to settle for that lawsuit. But Benny Thompson was one of the ones who spearheaded that lawsuit. He was the second black to be elected as congressperson in Mississippi from, I mean, since reconstruction, and he's held that seat since 
Mike Espy uh, relinquished the seat to become Secretary of Agriculture. But Benny Thompson is just a, a cheerleader, a warrior for all things black in Mississippi. Yeah. Hey, listen, and for our listeners, I want to point people to a book that I mentioned before. It's the, the State Must Provide by Adam Harris, which talks about HBCU funding and the heirs case or what have you. You can get a lot there. So, And I was really happy to see him chairing the January 6th committee. And, and it looks like some some good information is coming out. I hope it, it gets followed through to fruition and, and that people are held to account. Mississippi, in terms of education, was also innovative during the civil rights era. Talk to me a little bit about Mississippi Freedom Schools or Mississippi Freedom Summer and the schools and just what, sort of what came out of that or what went into it and what came out of it. Yeah, so I'm glad you asked about Mississippi Freedom Schools. Oftentimes, we know the basics, and that is that these are freedom schools that were created by, you know, young educated activists so that they could provide, you know, the adequate learning tools for youth, reading, writing, and arithmetic with qualified teachers, these, you know, students who were serving as teachers. One thing that doesn't get talked about a lot, and I talked to Dave Dennis, Dave Dennis was the director for the Congress of Racial Equality here in Mississippi during the civil rights movement as a, as a student and helped eulogize James Cheney. But I'll talk to uh, Mr. Dennis, and he said that what a lot of people probably don't know is that these freedom schools were also designed for not only children, but adults. And the reason was because you had literacy tests you had to actually be able to read and interpret certain parts of the Constitution, the Mississippi's constitutions, in order to vote. Well, if you had to read, then you had to read. And so the Freedom Schools actually taught adults how to read. Yeah. And so this was um, something that I did not know. But, yeah, the Freedom Schools, you know, taught about culture. It taught about, you know, issues related to, for example, Reconstruction and Mississippi having three black congresspersons and talk from an Afrocentric perspective as we would look at it today. I'm glad that that you mentioned culture because you mentioned just not learning facts and figures or what have you in your republishing or maybe even the original of Mississippi Conflict and Change. How does culture or tying history to culture play into learning and, and sort of those things? Well, some facets of culture are embraced by Mississippians and not black Mississippians and not white Mississippians. So it's one bridge of the divide, if you will, as it relates to like the arts. And so when we talk about the blues, you know, B.B. King, you know, even if you talk about Leontine Price, it cuts across race lines. And it's not that he was a black blues singer. It's not that she was a black opera singer. It's that, you know, everyone enjoyed that music. Yep. Art, for example, you know, like the pottery out in Marigold, Mississippi, it's good pottery. It's not just that it, you know, was done by, you know, some whites there, but it's good pottery. And so, you know, culture, I look at culture from the angle of the arts, from the angle of, you know, music, 
And so that's 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 how that's how I, I approach it. And that's how we approach it in the book. We look at it from the angle of music and art. Yeah. And where are you? I want to move on to some to some political things, but I do want to just where are you in sort of the republishing? And, and also, is this what age or what what grade level is this? Is Mississippi conflict and change? Will it be aimed at? Yes, I'm glad you asked that. So we've been really thinking about this, you know, in the in the era of critical race theory. It's not likely that, you know, we'll get the book adopted by, you know, some of these white school districts. It just happens to be the timing because the book actually, you know, does a good job of focusing on issues related to race that doesn't get it, you know, covered by some of these mainstream textbooks. But we decided that, you know, we publish it as the book was almost, you know, unsanitized and let people see that here's a book that was presented to the textbook committee to be used as a history book for ninth grade, and it was rejected. And so let people read it for themselves. But then also to, you know, bring the book up to speed, and it allows me to tell a few stories that, you know, for example, the story of it not being adopted. And so that sort of adds to the just basic history of the book. But right now, we're about, I say, three-fourths done. There are a lot of just basic facts, you know, that Jim wouldn't just want us to provide facts, but we have to go in and provide, you know, some of the things that have taken place. For example, in this state, and this is race-based, or race is a strong variable, that we've gone from a Democratic state to a Republican state and realignment is taking place. And, you know, I used to joke that when blacks joined the Democratic Party, whites began to party elsewhere. (laughs) And so right now, (laughs) right, right. You know, right now, I think we only have about four maybe white Democrats in the state legislature. Wow. And all of the, all the rest of them are black. And we have the largest percentage of black elected legislators in the country. So you're talking about literally white Republicans and black Democrats. Right. Right. And so we cover all of that. Well, that's good. I I look forward, uh, look forward to it. I will tell you in my research for, you know, another topic or a thing that we may be doing at the parlay in all blue. Hey, Hey, Mark, Mark, let me say this real quick. So one of the things we want we cover in like a pullout, you know, like in books, you know, you have like these little pullouts or information about a specific topic. One guy that we talk about is Ed Scott. Ed Scott, there's a book called Catfish Dream. Okay. And Ed Scott actually took on Delta Pride and some of these other catfish companies during the era, the catfish era when when catfish was an industry here in Mississippi. And he actually, you know, came up with this 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 catfish nugget. <laughs> and he was very competitive. But, the, you know, the corporations were able to get some of his clients to not order from him because they wouldn't supply certain things for them. But this guy by the name of Ed Scott is someone that we feature as someone who, you know, was was very innovative and very ingenious in 
integrating the catfish um, industry. Yeah, listen, I, I'm, I'm glad you, you you told that story because I think black entrepreneurism and the plight and sort of struggles of black farmers, and we've talked about that with Callie Holloway of the nation who we interviewed for the Parlay in All Blue in terms of the land loss and the struggles of, of black farmers or what have you. So I'm glad to hear that because it's really important. I will say that it, for a number of reasons. Black entrepreneurism is not talked about enough. And then you have people like myself, right, who will equate a lot of things to urban settings, right? And we leave out Blacks in rural areas and Black farmers and what have you. So I'm happy to to hear that that will, will be included. But like I was saying, I came up and just, just doing some background for the show, Mississippi Valley's in appearance in the in the Rose Bowl in 1961, and what a sort source of pride that was, and that's your alma mater. First off, tell me a little bit about that, and then if you could go into how did you get to Valley? Yeah, so you know, um, my father was a big Valley alum. My mom went to Valley. My brother went to Valley, and so when it came time for me, I played football, high school football, I played quarterback, and I kicked. And uh, my dad basically told me, you got two choices, son, and either way you're going to be wearing green. And he said, that is Valley or the Army. And so obviously, you know, I had one choice, and that was Mississippi Valley State. Mississippi Valley State was everything to me. We didn't know we were poor. And when I say we, I I look at it as a collective of students. Uh, We came, you know, my parents were what would be considered to be middle-class parents. We had a swimming pool. We had an upstairs house. But when I went to Valley, we were resource poor. Yep. But you were just another student amongst a bunch of students who were, you know, just trying to succeed in life. Yep. So we didn't realize, for example, when I left and went to the University of Mississippi and realized that, you know, when we were at Valley, we had to take a five and a quarter disc. People won't know what that is. A, a floppy disc looks, yep. you know, five inches. I don't know what it looks like now, like a like an envelope. And you stuck it in a in a computer, and then you got your fonts. So you got your time new 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 what is it? Um, times the, the, new, the Roman. new Roman. Yeah, yeah. Times New Roman was on one disc. You put it in, you pulled it out, and then you put another disc in there to make your your, your alphabet become bold. So when I left and went to the University of Mississippi for for grad school, we're looking at Max. We're looking at Mac computers that have all these different fonts. So, you know, a funny story was I leave Valley, which didn't have those type resources, go to the University of Mississippi. I turn in a paper with shadow fonts <laughs> because I was so I was so enamored with the fact that, you know, you had these different types of fonts. You know, Mississippi Valley was a place where I joke about, you know, us being so poor that, you know, we had one piece of meat that we could eat. And, you know, you could eat the bone of a pork chop. You know, we had a, a, a piece of meat that looked like a pork chop, but you could eat the bone. And the point here was that it was soybean. And so while, you know, some may say, look, you all were dirt poor. Well, soybeans are good for you now. So we were actually eating. Healthy. You're ahead of your time. No, but, you know, Valley taught me how to be resilient, to make do with what you ha- what you didn't have, you know, to make do. You know, I said I told a story about us going from Itabena, Mississippi, 
to Indianapolis and we drove on a bus. We had to do what we had to do. One thing about it, this is something that people probably don't think much about. When I think about the untouchables, so we talk about a cash system, we talk about like the untouchables. Valley was like a melting pot of different ethnic groups who had been oppressed. So we had, for example, Indian professors, we had Iranian professors, we had Asian professors. And my theory is that these were oppressed group of people who were not allowed to get their degrees. They earned their degrees at these majority white institutions, but were discriminated against from teaching at those universities. And, and similar to where it was done in the 60s when, when, when black teachers were given opportunity to you know learn at schools outside of the state and came back and was more qualified than the teachers, the white teachers that we had here. Likewise, you had these foreign instructors who came who were very, very talented and very, very qualified, but had nowhere to go. So we actually ended up with some really, really solid professors who, you know, were at Valley because they wanted to be there after they they had gotten there. Yeah. Listen, I I will tell you, I'm glad you told that story because I go back and forth in terms of in the, you know, what we lost in terms of segregation. And there's a group of teachers who are about my mom's age, which is 90, 91, that because there weren't any other opportunities, they were forced to teach in school systems. And so there's a generation of people who went to schools that were segregated by race, but had outstanding teachers. And actually, uh, Dr. Rhea Williams Bishop talked about that on our, on, on our show about just the quality of, of instruction that we had because they weren't accepted into broader society. And we, we lost some things there. To that point, though, who was the coach at Mississippi Valley during that time? The coach was um, Archie the Gunslinger Cooley. And Coach Cooley got his name the Gunslinger because he had this wide-open offense. I remember when we played Jackson State and we had gotten so cocky, we had beaten them the year before. We came back the next year. Coach Cooley was grandiose. I mean, very, very vocal, charismatic. He said, I'm going to start throwing the ball as soon as we get off the bus. And it was a wide-open offense. In fact, he's actually attributed to you know, being the chief architect behind the um, West Coast offense. We know that because Coach W.C. Gordon was a part of an initiative, HBCU initiative with the National Football League, where they had gone out there to a camp and he talked to Bill Walsh and Bill Walsh said, look, man, I went down to Mississippi Valley State and we were looking at this guy, Jerry Rice, and we really liked Jerry Rice, but we really, really loved that offense. And he said, in fact, we've incorporated in our scheme, we call it the Magnolia offense because we stole it from the Magnolia State, which is Mississippi. So, you know, Coach Cooley was very innovative before his time. You know, we had these characters in the swag, man. You know, and I'm getting a little bit away, but I'm going to say this one story. Please. We had people like Archie the Gunslinger Cooley. We had yep. the Godfather, Coach Cassum at Alcorn. Oh, yeah. And That's then right. you had, you know, Bob Hill, who was at Jackson State when Walter Payton and uh, Robert Brazil, when they were there. 
they line up once I went to a game, they line up on the 50 yard line and they actually smacked each other. <laughs> so you had Bob Hill and, and you had, um, that's right. I heard that's still right. Bob that's Hill right. And, right. And you had Coach Cassum fighting in the middle of the field. And, you know, I mean, it was theater. Yeah. Everybody who knows me or knows the show is I am a Jacksonian, uh, the I love, and I am so happy with what's happening with Deion Sanders there. And you're a professor at Jackson State. My son is there now as a student. I'm super happy about what's going on. The one thing that I I think is important, I'm glad you told that story about Coach Cooley, is we have had innovators and leaders within what I would call black institutions and just even outside of sports, whether it's in, in band or whether the legendary college presidents and and instructors. But just to stay in sports, we had Eddie Robinson was coach at Gramlin during our time when, when you and I were, were in school. We had Dave Whitney, who was at, at Alcorn before us at Temple at Tennessee State. I just want people, we should, we need to absolutely celebrate what's going on now, but also understand that we've had it before. And like Marcus Garvey said, People will do what people have done. It's important that we make sure that we we know our history and how it relates to today and how we can can continue to build on it. Well, I, I, I got to I got to interject right here because I can't let this get away. So when I was at Valley, you know, Valley gets a bad rep as being like one of the worst. I mean, NCAA schools in the country as it relates to almost any facet of sports. But when I was at Valley, we beat Jackson twice. We were two and two. We beat Grambling twice. We were two and two. And, you know, I have to let you know that, you know, when I was at Valley, I kicked the game-winning field goal, 13-10 against Grambling. So that's the all-time leading, you know, football coach. So, you know, when people talk about you kicked, I say, yeah, but I also beat Eddie Robinson. That way, hey, 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 listen, and not many people, because Coach Robinson had way more wins than he had losses. So, listen, I'm, I'm gonna give you and Valley that, and also Valley. I think it was my freshman year in the NCAA, the Final Four pushed. Not, it wasn't the Final Four, but during the tournament, during March Madness, pushed Duke to the limit. I want to say with Tommy Amaker oh, yeah, and um, yeah. Johnny Dawkins. Yeah, yeah, we we had them about twelve at halftime, and um, they end up fouling everybody out as you know as they normally do, and I think they end up beating us by six or eight. Yeah, no, I remember that game, and I um, I remember that that time period. Let me ask you as we we wrap up here, and we really appreciate your time. What is it about Mississippi that is beautiful that people from the outside wouldn't understand? It's the people. It's the culture. It's the people because despite the race relations that exist throughout the state, mainly political and socially, the people are some very, very hospitable people. A lot of times in this era of respectability politics, you know, the youth are knocked in Mississippi for saying, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. I mean, even adults will do that, but it's it's out of respect. It's out of respect for our elders, and, you know, that's conservative, but, you know, that's a part of conservatism, I think, that we embrace. 
and that is, you know, maintaining respect for your elders um, and, you know, being hospitable to people, being respectful toward one another. So I think that, you know, the people, we begin with the people, but then the culture, the rich culture, I mean, you know, the blues started here in Mississippi. And, you know, one blues singer says, you know what a blues started from? It says it started way back in slavery time behind the mule. And so with us, you know, having, you know, some of the largest plantations, you know, in the, in the country and, you know, the music actually originating out of Mississippi, people come, still come here. I know there's one juke joint that still exists here in Mississippi, right outside of Jackson. And you get people coming from near and far to witness this or be a part of, of the culture. So, you know, the music, the arts. So, you know, but I'd say the people. The people. I like that. What does it mean to live well? To live well, have a good quality of life would include having a good quality of health. One area that we lack in Mississippi is that we are in some of the lowest categories, if not last, as relates to health. And so when you talk about expansion of Medicaid and whatnot, some of those issues it's not clear as to why Mississippi will not accept federal funding to help with respect to health, but that is an issue. So to live well, I think, begins with health, the environment, having healthy people, but also having um, quality water. There's a big issue here in Jackson, Mississippi that does not get a lot of attention, but you know, as it relates to water, we're real, really, really, we're really, really comparable to Flint, Michigan. Oh, I know. Yeah, 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 for sure. I'm glad you said that. And so when you talk about quality, we're talking about quality of life. And um, we still have a, a ways to go here in Mississippi. Let me be, Before I ask the, the, the last question, I do want to ask. So we know Mississippi has, like everybody else, these nutty anti-CRT bills or whatever. It's just a political rallying cry. Like you said, it's it's nothing more than just a way for people to, for the, the right to organize its base. It, it's, it's nothing beyond that. Those are empty bills. But did Mississippi have any, so we saw in Texas and, and, and Georgia kick this one off in terms of introducing and passing restrictive voting laws. Did Mississippi have anything like that? <laughs> it's funny you asked that. No, we didn't. You know why? Because we already have them all on the books. <laughs> so we, we didn't have to we didn't have to adopt any bills because all of the bills are already on the books. We already have voter ID. We have felon disenfranchisement laws that are in place. I mean, in order yeah. for you to vote after you've um, been convicted as a felon, you have to have a legislator introduce a bill on your behalf and have it passed in the legislature as if it was a regular bill. Or you have to have the governor essentially pardon you and give you the right to vote. So we have the most severe felon disenfranchisement law, one of the most severe voter ID laws. So we really didn't have anything. Um, we, we don't have we don't have anything else to do. Well, no, no further oppression needed. No, no, we we we're at the top as it relates to that. I heard that as we close out. Five most essential Mississippi musicians, any genre, any era. Leontine Price. Yep. Cassandra Wilson. 
Yep. Muddy Waters. B.B. King. And Ike Turner. And Ike Turner. Now, so, okay. All right. So we've got Leontine Price. That's Laurel. And that's Opera. We've got Cassandra, Jackson State and Jackson Jazz. And then we've got Muddy Waters and B.B. King coming out of the Delta and Blues. And then Ike Turner. So, I, of course, Ike Turner is from Mississippi. I, 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 but until you rock and roll, who's, a, who's, a, who's an architect of rock and roll, I didn't know that Ike was from Mississippi. Yeah, he's from Clarksdale, Mississippi. Same area, Muddy, Muddy Waters, right out of Mississippi Delta. Of course he is. Of course. I did not know that. And I, and I don't know why I didn't know it, but uh, but of course and not. But so if he if he's getting his start in St. Louis, he's like my folks and everybody else just going following the river north. That's right. Wow. All right. That is a strong five. I, I, that's a strong, strong five. Shout out to David Banner. You know, didn't make the list this time. I'm sure there's a whole lot of other people that we could um it's my gospel group, the Canton. Um, is it the Canton Spirituals? The Canton, Canton Spirituals. But I, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned those who didn't make the cut. Because in the book, and Mississippi Conflict and Change, we actually updated. And we yeah. actually have crooked letters in there. We have David Banner, Kamikaze. Yeah. Because, you know, typically we don't look at hip hop as it relates to the culture, particularly yeah. when you're looking at it historically. And so we will definitely be including them in this book. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I, and and just is this is just for me. I saw Cassandra Wilson with Wynton Marcellus for his Pulitzer Prize sort of piece of uh, Blood on the Fields which is Cassandra Wilson was the lead vocal in that. I mean, just a just a powerhouse. Anyway, Dr. Ori, we really uh, appreciate you know the time that you've uh, you've given us, and and all the best to you in republishing Mississippi Conflict and Change, and everything that you're doing for students like my son and uh, at Jackson State, and just for HBCUs in general. So we appreciate having you on the parlay in all blue. Hey, Mark, I I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, man. All right. We appreciate you here at the Parlay in All Blue. Please tell someone about us. Share the podcast. Make sure you leave a comment. You can find the Parlay in All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or Stitcher. Wherever you receive your podcast, you can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite. Follow us or subscribe. Whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Marky G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.